lots of things spark my interest. I love design. I love innovation. I love thinking outside the box. I'm definitely a risk taker. Risk doesn't come into my vocab at all. You just can't keep living the life of Riley. You've got to seriously, you know, knuckle down and start doing things. Hello, my name's Chris Meredith. And I'm Paul Fairweather. And welcome to The Common Creator. We're on a mission to capture and share the tools and techniques of creativity. And in today's show, we have a very special guest. Our guest today is Glenn Boyle. Glenn is a entrepreneur. Uh, he has had a many varied uh, career, ranging from starting as a cook, restaurant owner, car dealer, real estate agent, and uh, lately he's all gone coconuts on us. Uh, welcome, Glenn, to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Much appreciated. Chris, you going to say hello? <laughs> <laughs> no, hello, Glenn. It's, it's a great pleasure to meet you. Um, nice to meet you, too, to, Chris. We're dying to hear about Coconia, which is a, a startup in the coconut area. Tell us about it. Yeah, um, Kokonui, uh was a uh, came by chance actually. Um, I was at a fifth birthday party. I was next to a, uh, a lady, uh, uh, one of the mums, and I said, "Oh, what what uh, what brings you here? And what do you do?" And um, Julianne responded that she was one of the uh, part of the coconut team out at uh, UQ doing this latest technology on coconut propagation, which is basically cloning coconut trees. So that led to um, her talking to me for about an hour on coconuts and um, uh, that was enough for me to go away and do a bit of research and um, the more I looked into it, the more I thought um, there was an opportunity there um, uh, business-wise um, to commercialise this technology that they'd been working on. Basically, in a nutshell, if that's a pun that we use a lot, um, <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a global crisis happening right on our doorstep. 90% of the growing uh, country, uh, coconut-growing countries are in the Asia-Pacific region, of which 50 to 70% of the trees are senescent or they've gone too old. Uh, they were planted just after World War Two. Or, or, or before, and uh, they've now reached an age where instead of doing 200, 300 nuts per tree, they're down to about 29 uh, nuts per tree. Meanwhile, in the last, you know, five, ten years, products of coconuts have gone through the roof, uh, water, virgin coconut oil, uh, the like. Every part of the tree itself can be manufactured and produced into a product. Automotive, they've got uh, um, activated carbon, which is used by the shell, which is used in uh, water filters. Uh, you know, so the list goes on and on and on. And over the over the last five years, that's exploded. Big <laughs> demand to replace these trees. The, the decision to get involved in the coconut industry with your background sounds like a huge act of bravery because it doesn't connect to your experience as a cook or in real estate or wherever it might be. What gave you the confidence to, to jump ship, if you like, and do something completely different like this? Yeah, I've always been um, involved in business from an early age and I'm always looking at I don't know, something something that um, sparks my interest, my passion. Um, you know, when I left school, it was um, – hospitality was something I always fell back into. I found that quite easy in, in the sense of management roles and, and uh, did a lot of travel. So travelling and, and hospitality worked hand-in-hand hand together, I suppose. And the opportunity to, to look at different businesses, like I, I mentioned uh, – uh, having a V-dub convertible business when I was 20 up the Sunshine Coast. Um, it was just an opportunity where I thought, 
how you know how good is this? We can chop tops off uh, old V dubs and rent them out, and you know live on the Sunshine Coast. And we did that for a number of years and uh, sold that business. And then I did uh, other things throughout the years, um, all business orientated, uh, like being the owner of a business um, with my own ideas. Um, but things like um, uh, you know, like for example, I found myself in IT for for a number of years, um, doing startup in in the IT working with uh, Steve Baxter at River City Labs, for example, with a firm there that we were doing a lot of web-based businesses and converting them to mobile um, uh, use. So very creative spaces. Um, so I've always been sort of creative in that sense. you know. Uh, I, I characterise you as a serial entrepreneur. Would that be fair? <laughs> <laughs> It's not a lot. Of, yeah, well, they say um, you know I wear a lot of different hats, um, but yeah, lots of things spark my interest. I love design. I love innovation. I love thinking outside the box. A lot of our listeners uh, work in big companies, and they've got those stable jobs where you get promoted every couple of years, and you might go across to a different department. But you're you're in a big company, working your way up the corporate ladder. And it sounds like your career has been, there's an opportunity I'll go after that. Here's an opportunity I've got after that. What advice have you got for somebody that's in one of those very stable corporate jobs to kind of embrace an entrepreneurial philosophy? Good question. Um, it's a tough one because I've never been in that position where I've been at a desk or you know, in, a, in a corporate role where I uh, uh, could work my way up through a ladder. I've always, in that sort of small business uh, role, I've, I've always gone straight to the top, um, you know, before <laughs> being the owner, <laughs> you know uh, and, and the buck stops with you sort of thing. So every decision you make is obviously crucial to the business and the bottom line. And, um, and although, although you haven't been on that corporate ladder, yeah. uh, you, you did have a, you know, your last iteration before the coconuts was as a real estate agent mm. here in New Farm and you were quite successful at that. You know, this market is booming uh, I know that you're in demand. You know that I suppose is the equivalent of what Chris is talking about. Yeah. You know, you you stepped away from that to do something that you know you didn't know anything about until you <laughs> met someone at a five year old's birthday party. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I think that's an that's, I think that's an equivalent step and probably a much bigger step. You know, because you were you were comfortable. Uh, yeah, very comfortable. You know. Yeah, I love the real estate uh, game. Um, but I suppose anything you do in life, it's sales to a degree, whether it's uh, hospitality or. Or whether I was doing the cars, or whether I was doing the IT, uh, uh, everything's in sales. So I'm just selling myself, or I'm selling an idea, or I'm selling a um, a purpose, um, a dream. Um, in this particular instance, I'm selling technology, uh, ag, ag tech that uh, is cutting edge, world class, world first sort of stuff. That I'm just having to be at the right time, at the right place. You know, this wouldn't happen five years ago, and in five years' time, it'll be too late. And it's recognizing when that time is right. And for some reason, uh, when I got out of IT, uh, I was looking around for something, but I couldn't find anything to get my, sink my teeth into. And real estate was something that, that I found really easy. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, there's, there's, uh, it's, it's unfortunately very easy to get into, uh, <laughs> which can be detrimental a lot of times, but, but if it, it, it's, it's great in the sense that, uh, it can provide you freedom where, if you do have an ideas, or like me, where you're an idea person, it gives you the time and the flexibility to actually work on other things. You know, so I could still sell if I had my mobile phone. Didn't matter where I was, but I could be sitting down at coffee talking about coconuts, and then I'll take a call and I could be selling Paul's house. 
yeah so and and the thing with coconuts and, and the whole business and this this thing it, when i look back over my my career it's taking uh elements that i've learned along the way and it's 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 almost taking every part of that and encompassing it into one big play um and that excites me um actually uh glenn there's uh, some recent studies uh of uh nobel prize winning uh no, um nobel laureate ec economists and they found that there's two peaks of people that win prizes one is in their late 20s early 30s and that's a um uh, conceptual creativity where they're just yep. basically plucking ideas out of the out of the air but then there's another group in their late 50s early 60s which is a um uh, experimental creativity where they're actually doing exactly what you described there of taking a, a career worth of knowledge uh and putting it together in different ways to come up with something new uh, yeah and, it, and it's sort of equal and balance and you know today so much there's so much you know focus on you know the young startups uh, yet, you know, I think um, I, I'm trying to uh, start a movement called the Finish Up. You know, so it's, yes, yes. it's where, where where people at our uh, our age, you know, can contribute back because we do. You know, we 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 have a different sort of uh, conceptual uh, create creative, you know, um, approach because we've got all that experience and knowledge. Yes, that's right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, no. possibly a greater appetite for risk. I think when you get to a certain stage, you think, "Well, I don't care. I'll give it a go." You don't feel <laughs> the risk. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that, Chris, because um, my wife uh, heads up risk. Um, she was with um, Suncorp for eighteen years, and she's moved across to CUA, and she she heads up risk. And uh, we're um, two worlds apart when it comes to business. Um, I, I've, I'm definitely a risk taker. Risk doesn't come into my vocab at all. Um, I, I tend to go in all guns a-blazing, uh, much to, to the uh, the angst of, of, of Natalie. But, um, you know, at the same time, um, you know, the freedom to be able to do that, um, she's my rock and my pillar. So... Uh, it's I great having that, that as a as a as a you know um, something that I can relationships slap my with, feet with on. people with people with different um, approaches to risk. If they can collaborate, if they can get on with each other, <laughs> it's a very powerful team because you've got two very different worlds. Well, the, the key is that you can get on with each other because if you see the world differently, <laughs> yeah, very very cool. differently. She she always questioned me. You know, if you just took risk into consideration, Glenn, for a moment, would you have done that? <laughs> and uh, I, I, I'd probably uh, be a totally different uh, person uh, if I had all I, those years. <laughs> I specifically seek out risk in certain projects that I do, some of my business projects, some of my creative projects. Um, yeah. I, I swim in the ocean each morning and I, I started doing that because I was scared of sharks and wanted to kind of deal. Yeah, right. Is that, yeah. Is, are you like that? Do you look for risk or is it just you don't know, you're immune to risk? Uh, look, um, you know, uh, I, I, I'm scared of heights. So I, I, I was when I was 33. I was um, I, I sold a lot of property and I took a year off and travelled the world, and I did whatever I wanted to do. I had the opportunity to do it, um, and uh, you know, and during that whole process, I, I, I challenged myself everywhere I went. I did ultralight over Victoria Falls. So I, I, you know, climbed the highest mountain. I, I viewed over. Valleys down uh, in Switzerland. I, I, I went up the high rise in New York. I, I got all over that, but um, just to prove to myself that I, I it was just a thing. Um, so it is, but, isn't it similar? It's, it's, a, it's a perception that you feel scary, but maybe it's not. And here you are, living, breathing, yeah. you survive those things. 
Yeah, you know, and, and, and the more you do business, the more you realise, you know, there are risks that you can take. And because of my background or what I've done in the past, I can learn by those mistakes and bring them forward and go, okay, well, to someone else it might seem like a risk, but to me um, it, it's it's a, it, you know, I, I've, I've learnt through uh, previous experience. So. Uh, Glenn, actually, I think it's an interesting point. I have a question, and it's not really about risk, although it is. Um, it's funny, I, I think of myself as risk-adverse, but as Chris was talking, I suppose I, I do take, you know, creative risks constantly. Yeah. Um, you, you're not risk-adverse, you know, you, you know, doesn't uh, come into your vocabulary, as you said, but you did have a restaurant uh, that burnt down. Um, now, you know, that, that's, I suppose, always a risk, <laughs> which is something we think about. <laughs> but that was a particular, I suppose, I don't know, how, how did, you know, you, you fought for years to get that restaurant back and in the end, you know, were unsuccessful. How did yeah. that play out in your journey? Um, it, it was. like So we, um, after that year off, I came back from uh, overseas. I was 33. And um, the kiosk down at New Farm Park came up for lease or tender and it was a tiny little ad in the paper that I saw and I, I just fell in love with it and wanted to be in, you know. So I put a tender in, won the tender and changed it to the summer house and it became a bit of a bit of an icon down in New Farm Park. It became very, very popular. We, we um, you know, we started off doing you know, a handful of people to just before the fire on the Sunday morning, we did 800 meals uh, for breakfast and lunch. Um, huge takeaway. It, it was just one of those fantastic stories where it just went from nothing to something in a very short space of time. I went from seven staff to 50 staff. I, I, I was doing huge turnovers. We were doing lots of weddings. We were doing uh, orchestric uh, um, uh, jazz and uh, on a Thursday night. Um, it was just such an iconic little spot. Anyhow, September 11th, 2000, uh, it burnt down to the ground. Um, and that and I was living uh, in Elston Road in that beautiful Art Deco unit. Uh, and I remember getting a phone call about five o'clock in the morning from the police. And I raced over in my boxes with no shoes and no shirt. There it was um, ablaze. Uh, and that was the start of a 10 year journey uh, fighting council on the redevelopment there after a DA uh, process and a tender process. And. A court case in the Planning Environment Court, um, we, we lost on the day. And uh, But what I did for that period that, that I can put my head down on the pillow uh, every night is that I did everything I possibly could. I didn't leave anything um, to chance. I, 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 I made sure that at the end of the day, uh, um, you know, um, whatever could be done uh, to try and rebuild. Um, so it, when that happened, um, Paul, I think that was my... That was the end of my hospitality days. I, I kind of, uh, you know, looking back in my uh, in the past with the people that I looked up to um, at the height of their um, careers in the industry, there was a momentum uh, that you just rode until you became, you know, someone and, and you had lots of different businesses. At, at that point in time, I had uh, Summer House burnt down but still operating. I had Tomoko at Roman Street Parkland. I had... Uh, Chocolate Art, which won Best Cafe in Australia in 2004. I had uh, uh, three outlets and a wholesale kitchen. I bought coffee up from Melbourne. I was distributing coffee. I had about 90-odd uh, staff. And and uh, as soon as that happened, the wheels fell off. I, I, I just basically, there was no momentum. I, I'd, I'd lost the passion. Um, 
And so I uh, went from hospitality into something else and that's where I got into IT and, and started doing a bit of um, creativity in that space. And that talk, told me, talked to me about scalability and things like that. Um, Can I ask how you pick yourself up? Because the thing about creatives is they put themselves out there. They buy a restaurant or cafe. They create works of art. They launch businesses. They do stuff. They put themselves out there and they expose themselves to risk. And, of course, that means sometimes it doesn't work out. And you just told us uh, the cafe burnt down. You had a battle to get it back and that battle was lost. How do you recover? If you're a creative, you risk something and the risk hasn't paid off. Well, for me, it was uh, the birth of my first child. Um, We we had been waiting for 10 years to get this thing to court and and get a decision either one way or the other so that I could move on. Nat fell pregnant in that year leading up to the court case and, and Eliza was born a week before the court case. So I remember leaving Nat at home with a, with a newborn while I went off to, to court for two weeks. And then we waited for 10 months for a decision. I, I think for me, having my first child and the responsibility that went with that, I just went, hang on, Glenn, you just can't keep living the life of Riley. you got to seriously you know, knuckle down and start doing things. Um, it was probably a couple of years later when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And that was a big thing for me. I'd lost my brother from uh, a tumor, brain, brain tumor and, and cancer, and my sister passed away uh, from cancer as well. And in a very short space of time, uh, diagnosed Boxing Day uh, was 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 uh, gone by May. So, uh, so for me, the, the prostate was was um, a huge challenge, bigger than anything, a loss of the business or, or anything I'd faced before, and. Um, and that had a huge impact on me where I, I, I talk about legacy. You know, what was, what was I leaving my kids? And um, I, I had a quick um, – I was in and out of surgery very, very quickly. They, uh, I had a, a prostatectomy um, removal, uh, which all came up in the pathology as um, contained within the prostate. So knowing that, just – I, I felt invincible after that. I, I just knew that I could go <laughs> on and do anything. You know, I've, I've suffered a fire. I've gone through all that. Yeah. Has the cancer influenced your decision to launch Coca Nui? What I'm thinking is, if you're thinking about legacy, coconut's very environment friendly. As you said earlier, the, the whole tree is used. And I'm wondering if you think about legacy, something as environmental as that might be part of your legacy. Is that right? Yeah, it is actually. Um, it was something that um, I was. When I was talking to Julianne, she said, you know, what happened was back in the day was your great-grandfather would plant the tree, your your grandparents would, would watch it grow, they would give it on to your parents who who nurtured it and, and reaped the rewards, and it was handed on to their children. So it was a generational thing. The, the only issue with that was that they were never taught to replace or replenish. And so the kids that, that have faced in in current world economics is that they're facing a lot of poverty in this and there's millions 12 million farmers that that are suffering at the moment because um they haven't been educated in in how to manage their plantations and the the biggest issue is that there's just not enough replanting stock available for them to cut a tree down and replace it with a new uh, variety what this new technology does is allows us to uh, clone elite varieties and on a scale that allows it to be cheaper, faster, um, and um, 
and make it available for, for poor farmers around the world. So there is a philanthropy type of, um, you know, the, the fact that you, you, you're planting millions of coconut plants for starters is a good green thing. Um, the fact that the coconut itself, uh, the, the uses are like there's, there's hundreds of different uses for the coconut as opposed to oil palm where there's just one outcome, which is the, uh, the oil. Uh, we're not chopping down uh, existing rainforests or anything like that. We're just replacing uh, like for like. Um, mm. and, and we're talking 700 million plantlets required right now in the world. Wow. So it's a huge, Glenn, huge operation. Yep. Glenn, actually, that, that, that story, the generational thing, reminds me of a, of a story that in, inspired me to actually, you know, do a little project a couple of years ago. But it's that thing of uh, the, the story goes that there was a, one of the colleges in Oxford uh, had borers in the oak beams in the ceiling oh, yeah. and they had no idea how they're going to replace the roof and they did uh, some search of the records and they found you know down the road away there was a an oak forest that had been planted 400 years before uh for the very purpose of replacing future timbers yes uh, <laughs> so i did a little project called tree to house and it was uh, a, a greeting card and had two seeds and one was a seed to plant a tree to build a treehouse in, and the other one was a seed for a tree to build a treehouse with. Um, <laughs> and again, it was you know it was a, it was a gift for your you know, you know your, your grandchildren or your grandchildren's children. Yeah, right. Uh, that somewhere in the world you could one day co- chop down a tree and you know cut it up. But I, I love that thing, and it, and it's you know it's, it's great. So in terms of uh, the, the technology, can you talk about that, or is that sort of under wraps, or is that? Um... No, no, it's 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 pretty exciting actually. Um, uh, so we, we do uh, somatic embryogenesis, uh, where we actually take uh, the inflorescence of the tree, so it's the the flower, if you like, of the coconut tree, and we take a tissue sample of that. Uh, we we put it in a um, a lab and we propagate that at the moment. We get uh, for one tree or one tissue sample, we get a hundred trees. Um, we're trying to scale it up to about a thousand, one to one thousand, and that's identical. So the beauty of that is we can go into areas in different countries that have different varieties um, and and pick their elite trees and take samples of those and replace the unproductive with uh, elite varieties, um, all true to type. So. Um, we're, we're working on um, a big project at the moment um, in the Indo-Pacific region. So I'm, I might just quickly cut in there uh, for a minute. We're doing a startup. So we're actually going to go to market and raise some capital to do a pilot uh, manufacturing plant, a, a lab where we can actually do the end-to-end processing. So we take uh, a tissue sample from overseas, bring it into Australia, propagate it, and then send it back overseas to be planted um, and uh, we do that on a scale where it's probably a couple of thousand to 20,000 plantlets um, through that process. Um, the idea then is to, uh, we've got some, um, some land up north that we're going to build the tissue culture lab on to ex- uh, uh, expand and, and, and scale it up so that we start off doing 500,000 plantlets per year and we increase it to 3 million plantlets per year. Now, to do that scale, we have to bring in a really quite a diverse range of, um, you know, artificial intelligence, robotics. Uh, everything's fully automated uh, because at the moment, everything's done by uh, individual jars, if you like, so very uh, labour-intensive. So 
the the idea is that we uh, take this technology and um, we scale it up by introducing other new forms of of, um, of um, automation. Um, in a purpose-built facility. For a farmer, coconut farmer, whose trees are getting old and yield yep. are declining, yep. they're still productive to a point. Is there any resistance to planting new trees, which presumably takes some years to become productive? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. So so we're faced with the fact that, that you know, their great-grandparents planted the tree for starters, so there's, there's a, a connection to the tree. Um, they want to be reimbursed for the tree as well, so they're not just going to cut a tree down to replace it. So, we're looking at alternative um, things like uh, uh, taking the timber of the tree and actually converting it into a, a veneer and, and other uh, furniture. It's beautiful timber. It's hard as um, so. There's there's that opportunity, but there's also um, uh, part of our research is that we're doing value chain analysis and market analysis and business case scenarios where we can go into a a region and say, um, if you start um, uh, growing variety A, B, and C, these are the markets external that you can tap into a higher produce, a uh, higher, uh, um, um, higher money uh, making products. Um, but I'm sort of uh, nudging towards is this idea that these farmers' grandparents or great grandparents had the vision to plant a farm, a coconut farm for future generations, knowing that they wouldn't themselves get any benefit. And here we are today with an attitude that there's no point doing stuff for future generations. It's all about me and it's all about now. I'm kind of wondering why and what you can do about it, because it's obviously deeply worrying if we don't care and people are allowing things to decay because it, it, they're not investing in the future generations. Yeah, I think, I think you know, it's, it's a little bit different over in these um, Pacific nations and, and um, Asian regions where... Um, it's part of their psyche, you know. It, it's it's a food crop as well. So you know, in in some cases, it's seventy eighty percent food. So they they need to have these um, uh, this crop. Um, the other beauty is that they can intercrop as well. It's it's an educational thing as as well. You know, um, at the moment, a lot of countries uh, are just doing coconut, and that's that's all they're doing on the on the land. There's opportunities to to intercrop with other other crops that we'll be looking at as well. Um, most of the markets are just for copper, and copper is just such a cheap um, product that they're not making any money out of. So, again, it's educating them to go, well, if you plant this variety, you'll get this outcome uh, or these products, and and uh, it lifts them out of the poverty line and provides them with other op- opportunities. Um, mm. and, and you're talking like, you know, we're, we're talking tens of millions of, of farmers and, and, uh, and the people employed in, in, in that region. So we, we chatted before we started recording the session about a story from Easter Island, yeah. um, which, and I understand the story is a depressing one. It was uh, the, the islanders on Easter Island had lots of coconut farms and that's they used the coconuts for, for food they used it for shelter they used it for building and it was an incredible resource and one year they had a bad harvest and they realized that the reason they had a bad harvest is that they hadn't pleased the gods so they had to build these beautiful stone sculptures to appease the gods and get a better harvest um so to do this they chopped down a load of coconut palms and used the timber to roll these enormous stones and erect these defiant statues that look out to sea at Easter Island. Um, 
and the harvesters still didn't improve and they chopped down more coconut trees to build more sculptures and and easter island became um deserted the, the islanders were at war with each other they had no food because they chopped down all of their coconuts, oh, all of them <laughs> And they either starved or had to leave the island. Um, I kind of the reason it's a well-known story is because people wonder if it's a metaphor for planet Earth, and that we're chopping down or we're using up all our resources. Um, I guess my question is, what do you think? Is, do you think um, it's a rather deep question, but do you think what you're doing does pave the way for us regenerating planet Earth? Is it, is it for future generations, or do you think of the bigger yeah. scheme of things where we are? burning all our stuff, um, chasing a god that isn't there, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I think, you know, oil palm had, um, when, it, when it came to its, um, you know, uh, popularity, they were cutting down lots of rainforests and and uh, natural habitat uh, just to get more oil palm into the ground. And um, over the last, you know, 12 months to 18 months, there's been, you know, Sri for example, um Say, declaring that they're not going to um, plant any more oil palms uh, um, and coconuts now um, uh, high on the agenda for replanting efforts um, uh, throughout those countries. So they're realising that, uh, you know, coconut provides um, so many different options for them. And, and in the past where they may have not had an oil content that competes with oil palm, there are varieties that we know of that, that can produce um, upwards of, of what an oil palm can. So it's, again, an educational thing where we can go in there and propagate those particular varieties and go, if you want oil, this is the variety for you. Um, and it's it's not going into green fields. It's replacing what's currently uh, in the ground. Um, and that regeneration side of things is huge. Uh, well, how, how long does it take for uh, a, a tree to grow to fruit? Yeah, um, so in the uh, lab, it's about um, uh, a 12-month period to, from the tissue to we get a plantlet, which is about, say, 200 mils high. Then there's about six months of acclimatisation, which is basically wherever it's going to go in the ground, it needs to be acclimatised. Uh, and then So that's an 18-month period. Um, and then there's about another 18 months before a dwarf variety would start producing fruit. Um, so there's three different varieties. There's dwarf, tall, and a hybrid. Dwarf is usually around about 36 months, um, and a tall could be upwards of five years. But there's still uh, shorter times than, say, macadamia, mango, um, uh, uh, you know. So um, And the process and the technology that we're working on is – trying to shorten that that um that propagation period um but, but um it, yeah it'll sound like you know things you said before about the intercropping and stuff so it sounds like it's not you're just sort of saying well here are the plants go plant them you're you know looking at a sort of a whole of life or the holistic approach to it to say well you know what products suit you best you know Correct. We'll, we'll pay we'll pay for the trees by you know selling the wood you know in the meantime you know put put this you know inner crop in so you get an income i, I think exactly. it's, actually, it's it's fantastic and i just, yeah. i love the i love the the breadth of the of the of the process you know that it's not just this focus thing you know it's really you know so wide and i and i think that's a real creative aspect for it and it's and i'm assuming it's what you've taken to the scientists at the university and said you know we've got this technology 
you know, what do we do with it, or how do we <laughs> how do we spread this to the world? Yeah, they uh, they, they certainly have uh, blinkers on when it comes to um, <laughs> business. Um, <laughs> they're, they're very focused on the academic uh, research side of things, and and uh, you know they would continue doing the same research or you know refining that research for as long as they could um, without any concept of commercialization i suppose um so uh, you know this is the time where you draw the line in the sand and go you've done enough research well, let's take it to the world um you know and and uh we know it's scalable we know um, the technology works um and we know there's a huge market for it so i, I was invited over to um so the international coconut community had their succession um, and ministerial meetings in Manila last year and they invited me over and, and I got to meet a lot of the uh, coconut delegates from around the world and when they found out what we were doing, they, they all wanted to know when we would be ready, when the product would be ready um, and uh, they were talking in numbers that just blew my mind. Um, initially, I, I, I thought maybe 500,000 to a million plantlets but we're talking tens of millions of plantlets that would be required right now, and that's a yearly thing. So one of the countries gave us a letter of interest, which was for a million plantlets every year for the next 10 years. You know, so, so we're talking like large, large numbers. But the one thing that they all said was they wanted to know what they should be growing. So, so they have existing varieties in the ground, but not necessarily the ones that they should have. And so mm. by doing these value chain analysis and market analysis will allow us to go in and, and look outside, okay, if your food crop, you need 60 to 70% for food, then this is the, these are the varieties for that. If you're looking for external export markets, then here are markets that are on your doorstep and you need to plant these varieties. You know, we've got the ability, you know, if I reflect back in 10 years' time, I'll be able to look and go, look how we're going now. These guys have created markets external to their and, and they've brought their level of, of, um, of, of life, you know, uh, up uh, from what it was, of poverty. Um, and, um, you know, they can send their kids um, for education. They can, you know, the cycle goes on, you know. And because we're now in this worldwide replanting effort, that will continue. They'll realise that, this is not something that you just stick in the ground and reap the rewards for. You, you you manage it and you manage it over a period and you just keep on replenishing when replenishing is needed. Glenn, how about you personally? I, I labelled you a serial entrepreneur, but on the screen I'm looking at your label, you're calling yourself Mr Coconuts. My question is, <laughs> is this it? You want to be Mr Coconuts from now on or as a creative, as an entrepreneur, do you, will you have a cheap eat? Will, will you find the next thing shortly? Oh, look, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm looking outside the box. So at the moment, coconuts is my full focus, you know, and it could be vertical. Uh, when I say vertical, you know, we, we get the technology to propagate, but there's opportunities to get into plantations or, or have Australians set up a coconut industry here in Australia. We import so much coconut material into Australia. And we've got the climate, we've got the areas, we've got the farm, we've got the know-how. Um so if I can get some of those farmers up north to, uh, to, to you know, uh, look at alternative crops, go nuts with the coconuts, uh, so that's plantation. The next thing is processing. So all of a sudden you've got coconuts to process. You can set up your own processing plants and start distributing 
instead of importing all these coconuts into into, into Australia. Uh, likewise mm. with New Zealand. So our market's quite huge. We, we, we import 120-odd million worth of coconuts every year. Um, you know, and then on the processing side of things, you know, the, there's the creativity there is that why don't we set up shipping containers that have processing plants internally that we can drop into these remote locations and communities where they go, if you plant X, Y, and Z, and we'll get your nuts and put them into the processing plant and come out with these different products. And that could be a community of 500 farmers or it could be 5,000 farmers. Uh, so what you're saying, on. even within the coconut industry, it could lead you in all sorts of new areas oh, of could, processing into domestic production, all sorts yes. of things. Yeah, definitely. Very definitely. So, so the, there's not just the the technology side of things, um, you know. So, and that that excites me. Um, um, and I'm and we're actually on a project now of of converting some of these shipping containers into uh, growth rooms for the technology, so we can drop these growth rooms off into countries and finish off the the some of the part of the process overseas, uh, and then obviously uh, the processing plants within these shipping containers. So. You know, there's there's lots of opportunities. I see it um, within this space, and it's just you know, um, you know, in a world of COVID, um, and we're all talking about you know recovery, and um, you know, a lot of people are throwing money at jobs and 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 industry creative, and you know, this ticks a lot of that those boxes. You know, so whether it's job creation or you know, building a manufacturing plant or or uh, taking that technology overseas, um, you know, to help out local communities over there um, who depend on, obviously, a lot of tourism that's completely wiped out now. They're all going back to the farms. They're all looking for uh, alternative um, source of income, um, you know. So so there's a lot more to it than just, um, yeah, planting coconuts. Planting trees. Yeah. Um, Glenn, that, that's been an absolute uh, fantastic conversation. Uh I've learned I've learned so much, <laughs> and I've known you I've known you for many years, and I've learned a lot about you as well that I didn't uh, I didn't know. Uh, uh, and uh, but uh, we have we have spent you know time together the last yeah. few years with kids at the same school and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, look, uh, certainly uh, you know uh, such an exciting pro, pro, pro project. And uh, what I love is you know we're always looking for this thing about you know applied creativity. Yeah. And, uh, when I said to Chris, he said, oh, I know this guy is, you know, planting coconuts. He's going, yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where, do, where does that fit into our uh, dialogue? But, uh, you know, I think it's just, uh, I think it's fabulous, you know, fantastic insights and, you know, your story itself has been great and uh, thanks for sharing all that with us. Yeah, thanks for I'd like to echo that. I think I've learned a huge amount. It's an inspiring story. I hope it's a huge success. I've learned about risk. I've learned about recovering from setbacks. Um, I've learned, some, learned about somatic embryogenesis. I'm going to use that in the next dinner party I go to. Thank you for that. <laughs> but most of all, I think I'm going to go nuts in future. Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Yeah, it's great.